0: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author about that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Hugh Urban, professor at Ohio State University in Comparative Studies, about his wonderful new book, The Church of Scientology, A History of a New Religion, through U- Princeton University Press, out in 2011. What is religion? And who gets to define it? Why is defining something in religion such an important endeavor? And what exactly is at stake in determining the status of religion? Like many people think, you may say, religion is self-evident. You just know it when you see it. But the process of defining the boundaries of religion have real economic, social, and political consequences. In this new book, Urban looks at this history and how the Church of Scientology is a perfect case study in defining religion. As a historian of religion trained at the University of Chicago, the categories that define our discipline were of great interest to Urban. Years ago, when his teacher Jonathan Z. Smith famously explained religion is solely the creation of the scholar's study, Urban wondered if this is really true. In this case study, he explores the complex story of how Scientology described itself and eventually became recognized as a religion in the United States. As a specialist in secrecy and religion, Scientology offered a dynamic example where secrecy played several roles in shaping the tradition, including insider esoteric religious perspectives, but also through the anxieties of Americans throughout the Cold War period. In our conversation, we discussed the American spiritual marketplace, the development of the Church of Scientology, challenges of the Internet for Religious Secrecy, and how to approach new religious movements. Finally, I ask Urban about his thoughts on the new Paul Thomas Anderson film, The Master. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Hugh Urban, a professor of comparative religion at uh, Ohio State University, about his great new book, The Church of Scientology, A History of New Religion, which came out with... Princeton University Press. Uh, thanks for joining us, Here, I appreciate you making some time to talk.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad
0: to be here. Yeah. Um, before we get into this book, um, you're you're rather unique uh, among many of the, the authors I have interviewed because uh, this book, at first glance, might seem like a, a, a very drastic change in your research. But can, can you talk about how you got interested in, in the study of religion and then um, – You know, some of the topics more broadly you deal with. And then uh, if you want, feel free to explain how how this particular topic
1: um,
0: of the book became kind of the, the focus of your most
1: recent research sure well i guess i've always been interested in religion because i came from a pretty religious family myself my grandfather and great grandfather and uncle were all priests in the episcopal church so i was always kind of surrounded by religion and was generally interested and then when i was in college i began to be exposed to eastern religions i went to india through antioch university's buddhist studies program and became really interested in hinduism and buddhism which was the hinduism was the subject of my dissertation research And as my research interests evolved, I became really focused on two main topics. One is the role of secrecy in religion. That is the question of why some groups choose to keep aspects of their beliefs and practices concealed. And then what are the larger social and political and cultural implications of that concealment? And then the second big issue that I'm really interested in is uh, sort of the history of religions and the history of the category of religion that is First, how religions grow, how they evolve over time. And then secondly, how it is that our larger sort of meta category of religion has grown and evolved over time. And even though a lot of my early research was on India, I was led to Scientology because of those two larger interests. That is my interest in secrecy and my interest in the sort of development of religion as a category. Um, Scientology obviously has a lot about it that is... Secretive, And so that naturally drew my attention. And then what I argued in the book is that Scientology has also been really central to um, the development and shaping and reshaping of how we think about religion in the United States, because it's been so controversial, and has really pushed the boundaries between what we consider to be. Legitimate religion, not legitimate religion, what we call a cult or a business or something else. So that's really how I came to be interested in Scientology specifically.
0: Um, and you, you really, uh, you, you make this topic very interesting because uh, even if you know nothing about Scientology uh, or, or don't really have any direct interest in the topic, um, for for scholars of religion, it's it's a very important book. Um, and as far as uh, one of the central themes you talk about is this, this idea of the category of religion. Um, you you in the introduction preface uh, some of your statements with uh, Jay Z's comment that he says religion is solely the creation of the scholar's study. Um, so, w- how does Scientology challenge this this notion that that it's just a manufactured, imagined category of scholars?
1: Yeah. So that was um, something that really hit me when I started doing research on Scientology because I had gone to the University of Chicago for graduate school and was a great fan of Jay-Z Smith and sort of took that line of his as sort of gospel truth that religion is, as we understand it today, is a creation of scholars. But what I found in doing the research into Scientology is that that's only partially true and that there are many, many other actors involved in the construction of our category of religion apart from just scholars. So there are journalists, there are the religious practitioners themselves, there are lawyers, judges, the whole legal apparatus, there are government agencies like the FDA and IRS. Um, So the construction of the category of religion is by no means solely the product of scholars writing away in universities, but it's all these other agents together uh, in shifting and complicated ways that create the category of religion as we understand it, and that means that it 's also constantly undergoing challenge and revision um,
0: what you uh, several times in the book you you talk about what 's at stake with defining religion can you can you talk about that a little bit
1: sure so because it 's uh, a contested and constructed category that involves all these different actors. It's not really just an academic game, but it involves lots of other very important things. In the case of Scientology, um, among other things, it involved tax exemption and often quite large amounts of money. And then it also involved recognition from the State Department and along with that uh, protection in other countries such as Germany. So, there are a number of other interests involved in calling something a religion or not a religion besides just um, what you say in an academic publication. It often involves uh, legal status, uh, recognition by the IRS, and in turn, large amounts of money, and then political status in uh, countries all over the world.
0: Um, the other big piece of this book is this, this idea of secrecy that you, you say you're interested in. Um, what are some of the challenges of studying any community that wishes to remain? their teachings unknown?
1: Yeah, this is a question that I have grappled with in all of my research, starting with my dissertation. My dissertation was focused on a group that emerged in uh, northeast India, the area around Calcutta during the British colonial period, and involved certain practices that were regarded with suspicion both by the British authorities and by Hindu reformers, and so secrecy was a large part of that movement uh, and it continues to the present. And so I was grappling with The problem that I call the ethical and epistemological double bind of secrecy, which means that there's both an epistemological challenge that is, if something's secret, how can you know anything about it? And then the ethical side is if you do know something about a tradition that's supposed to be secret, how can you in good conscience write about it openly? And so that's an issue that I've thought about really in almost all of my work. And I found that Scientology presents that ethical, epistemological double bind in a particularly acute way. There are aspects of Scientology that have been secretive from its inception. The, The life of L. Ron Hubbard himself is somewhat of a mystery. Um, And a lot of it has been concealed over time. Um, The upper levels of Scientology themselves are uh, esoteric when you get into the upper levels called the operating Phaeton levels. And then the church itself created its own kind of uh, intelligence agency, the Guardian's Office, which was involved in actual espionage. So there are multiple layers of secrecy within Scientology. And my overall approach both in my non-Scientology work and in this book is not to claim that I have some kind of insider's access. I'm not claiming to do an expose, but rather arguing that even from an outsider's perspective, we can still say quite a lot of really interesting things about a group like this without claiming that we've gotten the real inner secret.
0: Um, Before we kind of get into some of the details of L. Ron Hubbard and and Scientology, um, in the introduction, you you title it The World's Most Controversial New Religion and Why No One Writes About It. Can can you explain what's going on here and why uh, your study is
1: one of the first kind of uh, thorough academic studies of this? Yeah, I mean, that title there is a little bit of hyperbola, but um, it's true that there's relatively little written about Scientology, at least in English, compared to other groups. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is uh, the secrecy component, that a lot of aspects of Scientology have been concealed and protected. And secondly, Scientology from the beginning has had a very aggressive stance towards critics, um, both journalists and in some cases scholars. Uh, Scientology has a long history of pretty aggressive litigation towards critics and in certain cases, in certain periods of its history, engaged in extra-legal measures. There are some fairly famous cases. Uh, A journalist named Paulette Cooper wrote a book called The Scandal of Scientology in 1971, and the church launched what was called Operation Freakout, uh, whose stated goal was to have her imprisoned or driven insane. Um, Hubbard, in the 1960s, developed a policy called fair game, which means that critics of Scientology can be labeled fair game, meaning that one can use any and all means at one's disposal to um, essentially destroy them. Uh, That policy was officially uh, retracted later, but many critics of the church argue that it has still been in practice. So um, the church itself has developed various strategies, both to conceal aspects of its uh, actions and uh, uh, behaviors, but at the same time has it developed um, pretty aggressive means of challenging critics.
0: Uh, when when you were beginning this research, did you have any concerns uh, about writing this book after you these kind of tactics and uh, past
1: controversies came to light? Yes, uh, actually, when the, the book actually wasn't my own idea, I had written one article on Scientology for the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, and it was uh, the editor at Princeton who suggested that I I develop it into a book. Um, So I didn't even really set out to write a book on Scientology. And when I first told my wife that I was thinking of pursuing this, she said, well, you better get a lawyer or or ask the press to. (laughs) And so the press did actually have a lawyer read the entire manuscript with a fine tooth comb. And she gave me over 30 pages of very specific things to change, edit, reword, um, add more references for, etc. So, yeah, I, I did have concerns, but... I I approached it from the outset, again, not as an exposé. So there's really nothing in there that one couldn't find with some, you know, archival research or scouring libraries. Uh, So it's all based on uh, largely church sources and then um, some testimony from current and ex-members. So there's nothing really uh, deliberately um, sensational or scandalous or of the exposé variety in there. So I guess I, since I've avoided lawsuits so far, I guess I must. <laughs> well, good luck in the future as well. One thing I want to add that's important is that although Scientology has a long history of aggressive litigation, etc., it does seem that they've changed that tactic in the last uh, decade or so and are no longer as intensely litigious as they used to be. And I think one of the things that changed was uh, there was a major lawsuit with Time magazine, Time magazine had uh, done a cover story called The Cult of Greed in 1991 that was a very, very scathing expose of Scientology that led to a huge multimillion-dollar lawsuit that Scientology lost, which I think was a blow both financially and in terms of reputation. And since then, it has really backed off from that aggressive litigation. So, for example, when South Park did that parody of... um, the Scientology OT3 story, uh, uh, Scientology didn't do really anything to South Park. And when the St. Petersburg Times did a huge expose a, a couple of years ago, they they also didn't really do anything to the St. Petersburg Times for that. So it does seem like they've changed tactics in the last decade or so.
0: Um before we get into the, the life of L. Ron Hubbard and uh, kind of the early development of Scientology, um, what you do really well in the book is you, you set the stage for how L. Ron Hubbard is not uh, kind of a unique figure in the American religious landscape. Um, could, you, could you talk a little bit about uh, what you call this, this spiritual marketplace and what was kind of going on in, in American religious history at the time?
1: Yeah, so Hubbard, you know, in retrospect – I mean, from the standpoint of 2012, he looks kind of weird. But if you put him in the context of the early 1950s, what he's doing is actually not that far out of the mainstream and in many ways is epitomizing many trends that were going on at the time. So what you have in post-World War II America is really the rapid explosion of a new spiritual marketplace with all sorts of new things going on. You know, prior to World War II, the United States is still largely, you know, Protestant Catholic Jew Right, But after World War II, you have suddenly new imports from the East, new forms of Hinduism and Buddhism. You have all these UFO-based movements, um, new forms of self-help therapies that are quasi-religious. And what Hubbard is doing is kind of at the forefront of all that. So if you look at um, Dianetics, which is published in 1950, it's on the New York Times bestseller list for 28 weeks straight, and it's alongside other huge usually popular self-help books like Norman Vincent Peale's Art of Happiness, and then books about UFOs. I think the truth about UFOs is one of the ones on the list at that time. So he's by no means alone in this kind of new ferment of interest in um, paranormal powers of the mind, in reincarnation in past lives, in elements drawn from Eastern religions. And he's really kind of at the center of all that, which accounts, I think, for the rapid popularity of Dianetics and Scientology in the 50s and 60s.
0: Could you tell us uh, who L. Ron Hubbard was, uh, was and, uh, and more importantly, uh, this idea of portrayal? Uh, how, how is he
1: portrayed, and how, how do we know about him? Well, Hubbard is a difficult person to write a biography about because there are at least two different stories about his life. There's the official narrative that he told and that the Church of Scientology developed, and then there's the counter-narrative that critics of Hubbard have told so. As Hubbard described himself, and as the early church liter- literature described him, he's kind of a larger-than-life figure. He was portrayed as a heroic adventurer, world traveler, barnstormer, uh, a nuclear physicist, a war hero, etc. Uh, but critics of the church have argued that most of the details of his biography are uh, fabricated. Um, there was a Scientologist named Jerry Armstrong who had been assigned to help compile the official biography of Hubbard for the church and was given access to huge amounts of um, Hubbard's records. And in the course of his research, he says that he discovered that most of what Hubbard had said about his life was a lie. And so Armstrong then left Scientology, and took most of those documents with them and trusted them to a lawyer. So the counter narrative is that most of the More grandiose claims that Hubbard made were fabricated, such as his claim to be a nuclear physicist, for example, or his uh, heroic war record has been challenged. Uh, His PhD turns out to have been the product of a diploma mill. So so we have these two counter narratives. The one thing that everyone agrees on, though, is that he was a tremendous storyteller and really had a way with words. He was among the most prolific authors in the golden era of science fiction and wrote hundreds of stories under his own name and under numerous pseudonyms um he wrote at least two classics in that genre uh, they're still highly regarded today and then tons and tons of pulp fiction <clears throat> and then that that uh, tremendous literary output continued with dianetics and scientology and you can also trace many of the same themes between his science fiction literature and early scientology um, can you Kind of
0: outline some of the, the ex- transformative experiences Hubbard had uh, leading up to the, the the writing of Dianetics.
1: Well, he talks about one uh, important experience he had in 1938, and the story is that he had a kind of near death experience where he had the kind of classic experience of going out of his body with a silver cord going up into heaven, and then um, had a glimpse of all the worlds knowledge all the philosophy and religious systems of the world and then was came back to life and brought that wisdom with him and the stories that he heard a always saying no don't let him go he knows too much and allegedly that became the basis of a manuscript called Excalibur that uh, has still not been published there's little snippets of it on the Scientology website but the story was that Excalibur was so profound that anyone who who read it without the proper training would uh be driven insane or commit suicide. So that was one of his um, first great sort of experiences. It's in it, the narrative of it falls kind of the classic story of a mystical experience or revelation. Um, another, I think formative event was after world war two, when he was in California and became involved in a, a uh, circle surrounding a guy named Jack Parsons who was engaged in ritual magic in the tradition of uh, Alistair Crowley, the infamous British occultist. Um, I don't know if you want to go into that whole story, but Hubbard's involvement in ritual magic probably was um, in, was formative for the development of early Scientology as well. Um,
0: well, maybe you could kind of detail what what Dianetics is all about. What is the science, so to speak, behind Dianetics?
1: So Dianetics comes from Greek uh, dia and nous, uh, meaning through the mind. Um, At least that's Hubbard's translation of it. And the idea is that all of our problems and all the solutions to those problems come through the mind. And Hubbard claimed that through his research... That he had developed over many, many years. He had figured out essentially how the human wi- human mind works. And in his analysis, the mind is divided into a reactive mind, which is in many ways very similar to Freud's notion of the unconscious. And then an analytical mind, which acts like a flawless computer and sees the world accurately. And Hubbard argued that when we have moments of pain or unconsciousness, sort of traumatic events, they get burned into our reactive mind in the form of what are called engrams. And then they cause us further problems, both psychological and physical in the present. So say you had uh, a traumatic childhood and your father beat you, those negative memories, those engrams would then crop up in your present life and cause you problems. So through the therapy process called auditing you work with a, an auditor who asks various questions to try to identify where those problematic memories or engrams lie and then you uh, talk through them and clear them from your reactive mind and eventually when you've cleared all of the engrams from your reactive mind you achieve a state called clear in which you achieve a kind of optimum state of physical and mental well-being
0: now uh- up, up until this stage, um, Hubbard is not really making religious claims, but um, in the in the second chapter you, you called uh, Scientology, Inc., you talk about how Scientology is now being rethought or renegotiated into a, a, a religious perspective. Um, can you explain kind of what, what Hubbard's views of religion were
1: and then why he would later want to have his movement labeled a religion? Sure, and this is kind of one of the key parts of the argument of the whole book. So, Dianetics made no claim to be a religion at all. In fact, in most of his early lectures, when Hubbard speaks about religion, he does so fairly critically and negatively, particularly Christianity. But several things happened in the early 1950s that led to the shift from Dianetics as basically a form of self-help therapy to Scientology as a religion. One thing that happened is that Dianetics went bankrupt. it was very popular and successful for a year or so, but very quickly it f- it fizzled and there was a challenge to Hubbard's leadership. there were criticisms that he was too authoritarian. Uh, the movement went bankrupt then a second thing that happened was they began to get criticism from the FDA and from the American Medical Association for practicing medicine without a license several dianetics practitioners were arrested in the 1950s for practicing medicine without a license and so the turn to religion was in part uh, an attempt to avoid that criticism if they're doing something spiritual they're no longer subject to the criticism that they're trying to heal the body uh, without a medical license Um, and that's pretty clear if you look at hubbard's letters and um, uh, memos from that period. <clears throat> third thing that happened is in the course of the Dianetics auditing, some members began to recall past life experiences. So in addition to going back and remembering things from childhood or even from the state in the womb, they began to recall what appeared to be lives uh, many, many years ago, even hundreds or thousands or millions of years ago. And at that point, Hubbard begins to develop the idea of a spiritual self called the Thetan, which survives beyond the body and has past lives. Uh, And and Hubbard at this point begins to develop a pretty elaborate theory of the past lives of the Thetan, what he calls the the whole track. That is the track of our lives going back thousands, millions, and even trillions of years. And at this point, it develops into a really full-blown kind of cosmology and metaphysic
0: um you talk about the influence of Eastern traditions uh, in in this development towards a more religious identity um, how did how do these traditions uh, fit into representing Scientology as a religion?
1: Yeah, so at the, about the same time that um, he's getting criticism for practicing medicine without a license and getting some heat from the FDA, Hubbard begins to be more and more interested in Eastern religions. And I think part of the turn to the East was that he was always kind of critical of Christianity. And as he's developing the idea of the Thetan, he began to recognize similarities with uh, ideas of the self in Hinduism, like the Atman and um, ideas drawn from Buddhism. So from the mid-50s onward, he begins to talk about Scientology as having its closest spiritual kinship with the Vedas from Hinduism and with the teachings of the Buddha. I think he was drawn to the Buddha also because, like Hubbard, Buddha was just a man who didn't claim a divine status, but just to have figured things out and figured out how the mind worked in particular. So along with the more elaborate cosmology that Hubbard develops, he also begins to talk about the... Uh, spiritual abilities that the Thetan will have once it becomes increasingly freed from the bonds of the material world. And many of the claims that Hubbard and Scientologists made about the abilities of the spirit are very similar to the yogic abilities that you see like in the Yoga Sutra or in uh, in Buddhist literature.
0: Um, Can you tell us about uh, the actual church
1: of Scientology? How how did this uh, come about? So as Hubbard is beginning to think about pursuing what he called in a letter of 1953, the religion angle. Uh, He eventually decides to establish this formally by incorporating it as the Church of Scientology in uh, December 1953. And then the first actual churches of Scientology are formed in 1954. And at that point, the movement goes from being what was originally a very loose kind of grassroots decentralized movement as Dianetics to a much more Hierarchical and institutionalized uh, religion under uh, Hubbard Scientology. So there's an organizational shift also, and uh, the movement really at this point begins to take off on what some have called a kind of franchise model, and spreads very rapidly in the 50s, 60s, and then really takes off in the 1970s.
0: Um, in chapter three, you uh, you call Scientology the uh, a cold world a uh, cold world uh, war religion. Uh, how How is Scientology representative of kind of the
1: Cold War era? Yeah, this was um, from, I mean, I think this is the most original contribution I can claim to have made in the book is by putting it in the context of the Cold War and seeing Scientology not as some kind of weird aberration of this period, but in many ways an epitome of many of the hopes and ambitions and anxieties that were at the heart of the Cold War. Uh, first of all, Hubbard himself presented Dianetics and Scientology as the solution to nuclear war. He was very concerned about the possibility of an imminent nuclear holocaust. Uh, He created his own uh, anti-radiation drug called dianazine. He also wrote a whole book called All About Radiation and argued that Dianetics and Scientology would be the way of kind of getting human beings under control so that we didn't destroy ourselves. So he himself presented Scientology as kind of a a solution to the Cold War. Um, Second, he was very concerned about communism from the very beginning. Uh, From the early 1950s, he wrote numerous letters to the FBI identifying communist threats both around him and even within his own organization. And then third, I think he's really a reflection of the larger Cold War preoccupation with secrecy and information control. Uh, I think to understand why there's so much uh, concern with concealment and with internal surveillance and sort of fears about uh, subversion, you have to put it in the larger context of the Cold War, where that was kind of the climate in many ways, this larger concern with secrecy, surveillance, information control.
0: Why at the time was uh, was secrecy and e- information control becoming so important to the Church of Scientology?
1: Well, a couple things happened. Uh, one, they were becoming increasingly um, scrutinized and often persecuted on all sides from the media, which was seeing them as kind of a weird, wacko, you know, past-life hypnosis cult. And then from various government agencies, not just the FDA, but also the IRS by the mid-50s, and through the 60s was beginning to investigate Scientology. So they're, they're getting scrutiny from all sides, and I think that sort of fed into Hubbard's already existing concern with information control. So in the early 1960s, Hubbard introduced uh, the, the policy of fair game that I mentioned earlier to go after critics, and then processes like the uh, security checks, which is a form of um, fairly aggressive auditing, Uh, that's designed to try to weed out subversive elements within the movement. So there's a concern about attacks from outside and also from uh, uh, subversive elements within the movement itself. And then towards the end of the 1960s, Hubbard develops higher levels of Scientology training called the operating thetan levels, which are classified open only to those who've gone through all the preceding levels of training, and it's in the operating Thetan levels that you learn new information about the past history of the universe, and uh, more advanced levels of training, and how to deal with the sort of uh, mess that Thetans are in in this material universe.
0: Um, in, in relation to this uh, this conflict that was uh, becoming greater and greater at this time, um, you talk about the role of the Guardian's Office. Can you explain what the, they are and what
1: they're doing? The Guardian's Office was sort of the intelligence branch of Scientology that was developed under Hubbard's wife, Mary Sue, in the 1960s, and went, it survived up through the 70s until the, the huge uh, kind of crazy escalation of surveillance and counter-surveillance between uh, the Guardian's Office and the uh, the IRS. So the Guardian's Office was designed to sort of uh, monitor and protect the Church of Scientology from threats, both from within and without, and was involved in a wide array of different operations. Uh, One I mentioned earlier, the Operation Freakout, which was designed to harass journalist Paulette Cooper. And then the most outlandish one was Operation Snow White, which was the Guardian Office's uh, kind of really elaborate war with the IRS in which eventually Scientologists infiltrated IRS offices and uh, stole thousands of documents, and eventually, uh, Mary Sue and uh, eleven others were arrested and imprisoned. And Hubbard had to go into hiding for the rest of his life.
0: How did how did individuals uh,
1: kind of justify this? Well, if the mission of Scientology is really not simply pursuing one's own spiritual freedom, but really from their point of view helping all of humankind and really saving the planet from destroying itself so from their perspective any means are justified for this greater end and this is implicit I think in policies like fair game which basically says that you know you can do anything to protect Scientology because this is Earth's only hope ultimately
0: um, in chapter 4 you you move into um, this idea of a cult uh, before we kind of get into the specifics of how this is related to Scientology? Um, how do how do groups individuals get labeled as cults? Are there distinguishable features that would be uh, exclusive to them from more quote unquote mainstream religions? And why why was this label becoming
1: increasingly used in in the seventies and eighties during this period? Yeah, well, the, the term cult had been thrown around for a long time. I mean, the, the word itself doesn't have any particularly pejorative connotations in its original usage. But um, in the 70s and 80s, it became more and more widely used in popular culture to talk about these many new religious movements that were popping up all over the place. And I think in the 70s and 80s, there's a, a growing fear that um in the wake of the counterculture and the psychedelic culture and the whole, you know, revolution of the 1960s, that the very fabric of society was coming undone. And then you add into that sort of Cold War, cold war fears of anything that looks like communism or socialism. And so you have a prolifer- proliferation of many new religious groups, you know, everything from the Hari Krishnas to the People's Temple to many, many others that look really weird to mainstream America and are attracting young people and are living differently, thinking differently. Um, And so I I think that's when that whole cult scare epidemic really gets going and you have the rise of a variety of uh, anti-cult groups like the Cult Awareness Network and many others. And um, Scientology was really central to those debates because it was one of the not only fastest growing, but also uh, financially most successful movements of the time. Um, since
0: this idea of defining or labeling is so important to the book in general, uh, what would you say the, the consequences of being labeled a cult were during this period?
1: Well, it immediately put you in the same category as the Charles Manson family, and then after the Jonestown suicides with groups like the People's Temple. So calling something a cult uh, immediately brought up associations of murder sprees and mass suicide, brainwashing, etc. And so the, the danger of calling something a cult is that it leads one to immediately dismiss it out of hand as either something ridiculous or as something dangerous, rather than trying to take it seriously on its own terms. And that's why... In the field of religious studies, at least in the U.S., most scholars nowadays no longer find the term cult useful and prefer to use more neutral language like new religious movements, et cetera, simply because it allows you then to actually take them seriously and figure out what they're about on their own terms rather than dismissing them out of hand.
0: Um, What was the the popular perception of Scientology at the time, and, and why did it fit into this cult
1: designation? Well, the, the, you know, the stereotype of the cult is that you have, first of all, a charismatic leader, and Elron Hubbard clearly fits that stereotype. He was a flamboyant, charismatic guy who seemed to really um, cast a kind of spell on people. And even even people who uh, left the church and became disaffected with Hubbard still recall that he had tremendous charisma. So he was really um, a kind of paradigm of the the so-called cult leader. Secondly, uh, Scientology did have systems of control and surveillance, like the security checks and the fair game policy and all that, that fit the model of the cult as a highly controlled uh, movement that limits freedom as far as possible. Uh, And then they clearly did engage in a variety of illegal activities. The Operation Snow White uh, operation against the IRS was the most egregious example, but they were a movement that really pushed the envelope and was doing. They were doing things that were fairly outrageous, particularly in the 1970s. So, because of all that, um, I think they became kind of the poster child for the anti-cult movement. Um,
0: if we're if, 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 we're not, if we agree that this this term cult is not useful, of course, um, what do we do as scholars of religion when dealing with uh, religious groups that are somehow problematic?
1: You yeah, know, well, that's the key question. Um, but I guess I would turn it around and, you know, say, you know, calling something a religion doesn't mean that it's entirely good. I mean, just because the Catholic Church has a history of covering up Priestly sexual abuse, that doesn't mean that it's no longer classifiable as a religion, right? So, I would say that you have to treat all groups with equal scrutiny, uh, that is, approach them respectfully and try to understand what they're about, but also not exempt them from criticism and asking hard questions, so that I would apply the same standard to Scientology that I would to the Catholic Church, meaning that I'm going to take it seriously and try to understand what it's about, but I'm not going to you know, not talk about um, clear examples of illegal activities or misbehaviors. Yeah, and I like
0: uh, in the introduction you phrased this, the hermeneutics of respect and the hermeneutics of suspicion. So I, I think this is a really good approach. I've talked to a couple, uh, other people that work on groups like the KKK,
1: for example, and how, how we can understand that as uh, them as religious groups. So Yeah, and uh, Scientology is, is difficult in that case because <clears throat> there are moments when it, it becomes a real challenge to maintain that hermeneutics of respect. So I'd say that Scientology is a particularly clear test case for that sort of approach. Yeah.
0: Um, the uh, the other thing you deal with in this this chapter four, which I think uh, most people that don't know a lot about Scientology, is this relationship between Sin- the Church of Scientology and uh, celebrities. Can can you talk
1: about this relationship a little bit? Sure. So from at least the 19th, ni- mid-1950s, Scientology began to talk about targeting celebrities as a means of, um, you know, raising the profile of the church. It didn't seem to really go anywhere until the early 1970s, well, I guess late 1960s, and early 1970s, when they began to set up celebrity centers, began to uh, um, publish celebrity newsletters, etc., become more active in Hollywood. And then that whole angle really takes off when they, um, attract John Travolta who becomes the really first big celebrity to get on board. And then after him, Tom Cruise and Kirstie Alley and many, many others. So there was a, a a deliberate strategy from 1950s onward to target celebrities, uh, as really spokespersons and poster children for Scientology. And, uh, so Scientology has celebrity centers around the world. The one in Hollywood is one of the most famous and most opulent ones. But on the flip side, I think there are also aspects of Scientology that would be particularly attractive to celebrities. So it wasn't just that Scientology targeted them, but I think there are reasons why celebrities were attracted to Scientology as well. Among other things, Scientology promises to unleash one's ultimate creative potential uh, I mean, from Scientology's perspective. We're all spiritual beings of infinite abilities. And I think that idea of unleashing your unlimited creative ability would be very attractive to uh, uh, musicians, to actors, etc. cetera.
0: Um,
1: another thing I've heard several people say is that celebrities have been drawn to Scientology in part because uh, celebrities, so much of their life is about the image of themselves that's constructed by media and by the whole entertainment industry. And Scientology promises to kind of strip away all those external layers and to kind of uncover the real you. And I've heard several people say that that's one thing that celebrities have found most appealing about it.
0: Do you think uh, – you don't, you don't really talk about this a lot in the book, but uh, do you think it, it could also have a ne- negative effect in, uh, for example, Tom Cruise – is always in the media. Um, do uh, do you think people think his ac- activities that
1: might seem outrageous are motivated
0: by Scientology?
1: Yeah, I think that's been a real problem for them. Actually, I mean, uh, Tom Cruise has been described by some as almost second in command in Scientology. Now he's very close to David Miscavige, the current head. But I think Tom Cruise's various antics have probably done at least as much harm if not more than than good for the church the clearest example was the uh, promotional video that he made for scientology that got leaked to youtube in 2008 and then you know went viral all over the net where he looks you know intense to the point of manic and kind of alarming um that video i think did real damage and so the the association of the problematic aspects of Scientology and then the craziness of Tom Cruise have just made people think that the two are are identical, essentially.
0: Um, in, in chapter five, you talk about uh, this this uh, journey towards uh, tax exemption status as a as a religion. Um, can you talk about kind of the the longer history between the
1: Church of Scientology and the IRS? Yeah, I'll have to give you a very brief version of <laughs> sure. Like <laughs> <could> Occupy Volumes. <laughs> so as as Hubbard begins pursuing what he called the religion angle, he uh, fairly easily acquires tax-exempt status in the mid-1950s. Um, but relatively quickly, the IRS begins to investigate Hubbard in Scientology and concludes that – it's it's from their perspective a for profit operation and that Hubbard and his family are benefiting personally. So then in the nineteen sixties that status is stripped uh, of the main Scientology churches. There was a brief moment when Hubbard pursued a strategy of trying to shift all Scientology operations under the Church of Scientology of California, which had sort of flown under the IRS's radar and still had tax exemption. Uh, That didn't last very long. The IRS investigated that and then stripped all of their tax exemption across the board. Um, So from the late 1960s until 1993, there was a massive battle, what Scientology itself called the war and the most important war between Scientology and the IRS that involved literally thousands of lawsuits. I think they had at one point something like 2,000 lawsuits going on simultaneously. So, uh, you know, hundreds of lawyers, thousands of dollars being spent, and it wasn't resolved until 1993, and the details of what exactly happened are still kind of unclear, but uh, in, in summary, the, the church reached a settlement with the IRS where they agreed to pay $12.5 million in back taxes. And the IRS, in turn, um, gave blanket exemption to not just the churches of Scientology, but to all Scientology-related entities, including what appear to be quite secular entities like um, the the book publishers that republish Hubbard's science fiction. Right. So not only the sort of religious elements of Scientology have been given tax exemption, but all the seemingly more secular ones as well, which is fairly remarkable. Um, so th-
0: I, this is this is a great example of the, the importance of defining religion, of course. Um, can, can you talk about uh, wh- what do we learn as scholars of religion uh, in the specific case of Scientology and this category of religion?
1: What's most interesting to me is that Scientology – really kind of self-consciously tried to articulate itself as a religion. So Dianetics doesn't start out as a religion, but as Hubbard is pursuing these other battles with the FDA and then with the IRS, Scientology sort of re-describes itself and re-re-describes itself over the next few decades as a religion. So in addition to calling itself a church, Hubbard says explicitly in in letters of this period that the Scientology cross should be displayed prominently, that Auditors should start wearing clerical collars. Um, so they start using not just the language, but the, the physical appearance of religion, specifically you know, making themselves look more like a recognizable Christian religion throughout these decades. Um, and in turn, it really challenged, I think, the IRS to think about what religion is. Um, because you know, Because of the complex history of interpretation of the First Amendment and freedom of religion and all that, The U.S. government doesn't really have a clear-cut way of determining what's religion and what's not. So ironically, it's sort of fallen to the IRS by default because the government doesn't define a religion, but we still have tax exemption for religious entities. So the IRS sort of has to sort that out. And it's probably not accidental that in the mid-'70s, at the same time that Scientology is engaging this huge war with the IRS, the IRS Institute's... um, sort of a guidelines for determining what's religion and what's not. Um,
0: th- th- the other thing that I think is really interesting about, uh, about Scientology and this, this idea of defining religion is uh, the, the ambiguous nature of uh, Scientology's status as a religion throughout the world. Um, can you talk a little bit about this and, and the implications for, for this idea of a religion?
1: Sure. So even though Scientology finally did win recognition as a religion in the U.S. in the eyes of the IRS and the State Department, uh, it still is not recognized in many other countries. Um, France and Germany are two of the clearest examples. And one thing that David Miscavige and Scientology hoped was that by winning the so-called war with the IRS and then getting State Department recognition, that that would then give them more leverage in places like Germany and France. So they then try to use that to their advantage to say, well, you know, we've got the, the U S giving us their, um, imprimatur as a religion. So everyone else should as well. Um, but I think because of the different histories of church and state relations in places like France and Germany, uh, and, and I'd, I think also a more skeptical attitude towards these groups, they're still regarded as, uh, a cult or something else in many other nations.
0: Um, the uh, the the last chapter you have, you, you talk about some of the new challenges with the, the the presence of the internet. Can can you talk about what happened with the introduction of the internet and the widespread use of of uh, the World Wide Web? H- how did this affect the Church of Scientology?
1: Yeah. So ironically, at almost the same time that Scientology wins its war with the IRS they faced this new, even more challenging war with the Internet. And it's just the nature of the Internet to disseminate information and to find ways around any attempt to block the flow of information. And this became a particular issue around the upper operating Thetan materials, especially a lot of it was around operating Thetan level OT3, which tells the whole story of the intergalactic emperor Xenu and all that that was uh, ridiculed on South Park. So ex-Scientologists uh, were involved in a couple of court cases in the in – the- course of those cases, the operating thetan levels were made part of the court record and then very quickly got leaked and found their way onto the internet and from there spread wildly. And the church fought several major battles to try to staunch the flow of information but I think just the nature of the internet made that really a losing battle and maybe made it worse by making them seem even more tantalizing. So now anyone could find the upper OT levels or the secrets of Xenu Fairly easily, and uh, then the other thing that happened is uh, after the Tom Cruise video was leaked, and Scientology tried to block that from circulating. The uh, the controversial collective known as Anonymous got involved and began waging a new kind of cyber war on Scientology as well.
0: Um, you talk a little bit about some some of the motivations. What are kind of, what's the spectrum of motivations? Why would groups want to expose Scientology like Anonymous? <laughs>
1: Well, there are lots of different actors involved in this. Uh, One set of actors are ex-Scientologists, so people who have been part of the organization became disaffected, um, concluded that it was a, a, a destructive movement and wanted to spread information that way. So you have Factnet and various others that are doing that sort of work. Then you have groups like Anonymous, and I think Anonymous is motivated primarily by their conviction that the Internet should be a radically free space and that any attempt to, to impede the flow of information is a bad thing. And when they saw the Tom Cruise video leaked and then Scientology trying to prevent the circulation of that, I think that was just a kind of... Uh, a rallying cry for them to get involved and, and to do everything they could to harass Scientology, both in the virtual realm and also they've been involved in physical protests as well.
0: Um, in, in your conclusion, you you, you kind of uh, take a step back and you think about uh, new religious movements more generally. How, how how should we approach new religious movements in a, in a post-9-11 world?
1: Yeah, well, that's the, the hard part, I guess. Uh, um, um, I guess it goes back to my original argument about the dual hermeneutics of respect and suspicion or hermeneutics of respect and criticism, which is that um, it's more important than ever now that we take these groups seriously and try to understand what they're about. And also now that we have all these new forms of surveillance in the wake of 9-11 and the Patriot Act and all that, um, it raises important questions about uh, privacy and how we respect groups privacy. But on the other hand, That doesn't mean that we should just have a hands-off policy. It means, I think, that we have to also take seriously problematic groups and look closely at when they're involved in uh, illegal or other uh, unethical activities. Um, I
0: I wanted to ask you uh, what what your thoughts are on this this new film, The Master, and... Maybe you could kind of – what's your take on where does this fit into kind of the polemics or surrounding Scientology?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I just saw it on Monday, and uh, I'm working on trying to do a article for the New York Times, I'm trying to hash that out right now. Um, I thought the movie was fascinating, at least for someone who knows the details of Scientology, because even though it's not a movie about Hubbard or Scientology um, – it's clearly inspired by hybrid and Scientology as kind of the uh, epitome of this master seeker relationship and also of a, of this whole period in 1950s America when you have new groups that are very controversial like Scientology emerging. So I could tell that Anderson did a huge amount of research because he had very specific details in there that... Probably, most people wouldn't note unless they'd written a book about Scientology or been studying it for a long time um, and on the whole i I thought that to the degree that the Dodd character in the Master is based on Hubbard, I thought he actually is a fairly sympathetic portrayal I mean it doesn't portray the dodd slash Hubbard character as a madman or a monster or a pure charlatan. It really paints paints a more complex and human portrait of someone who's generous and compassionate in some ways, but also cynically manipulative in other ways, which, I mean, to the degree that it is about Hubbard, I think that's a more complex, interesting way of thinking about him.
0: Well, Hugh, you've uh, you've shared a lot of your time, and, and we appreciate it. But, but before I let you go, could you uh, tell us a little bit about other projects you're working on for the future?
1: Yeah, I have two things that I'm working on right now. One is a project I've been working with for a long time on secrecy and religion in a comparative context. Um, So looking at a a variety of case studies of secrecy and religion, um, ranging from Freemasonry to terrorist organizations, to think about uh, the complexity of secrecy and religion and also the complexity of the ways in which one needs to approach it as a researcher. And then, the other project is kind of a textbook thing that I'm working on on new religious movements for University of California Press. Um, I've never worked on a textbook before, so it's a different kind of writing that's uh, kind of fun.
0: Cool. And we look forward to this uh, this article for the New York Times, too. I think that'll be very interesting. We'll
1: see if it's... We're still trying to figure out how it's going to turn out, but...
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. Uh, thanks again, Hugh, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll hear some more from you in the future.
1: All right, thanks for having me. It's been fun.
0: That was my conversation with Hugh Urban about his new book, The Church of Scientology, A History of a New Religion, out in 2011 by Princeton University Press. Thanks for listening.